Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. It's so nice to be home. (laughs) It's wonderful to travel, but it is, it's always great to come home, although we've mentioned this before. Our home always smells weird when we get back. <laughs> it sure does. And uh, luckily, it's not because of anything we brought back. We, um, of course, we were in Mexico. And when you come back from Mexico, obviously, you have to go through customs. Mm-hmm. And this is always an interesting experience for me, specifically. I always immediately mm. start doing a mental uh, checklist of things I I have in my bag that might get me arrested. Yeah, but you don't act like someone who's concerned they're going to be arrested. When we were speaking with the man at customs, he was all like, where were you? And we were like, Cabo San Lucas. And he was like, how long were you there for? (laughs) And I was like, six days. And he said, did you bring anything back with you? And here flies in my man, just a few inches on the waist, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I was bonding with the customs agent. As though you are an 80-year-old man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Once I said it, I did have visions of... Um, Eugene Levy? Yeah, from Best in Show. Put a few clicks on the old odometer, if you know what I mean. Yeah. I, I felt it was kind of a bonding moment between myself and the customs agent. He looked at me knowingly and, and he said, yeah, I hear that, buddy. Nope, that didn't happen. He said, you can go now. Oh, maybe I was imagining all of that. Yeah. I was delirious from the long flight. Anyway. I wish you had bonded so I could have left you there. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. So I've got a story for you. Please tell me a thing. Okay. Something strange started happening. In the neighborhood? No, in the desolate prairies of the United States in the late 1800s. The strange phenomenon was little understood at the time, but it terrified those 
who would settle that land. It was known as Prairie Madness. Ooh. Prairie Madness seemed to come from nowhere and from everywhere at the same time on the Great Plains in the mid-19th to early 20th century. People who were known to be kind and patient and uh, otherwise genuinely pleasant to be around would suddenly change. Oh, no. Sometimes the changes were not small. Sometimes they were very dramatic. People that were once gentle and soft-spoken would become violent with rage, and it would seem to come from the plains themselves. Oftentimes, prairie madness would would come on subtly, manifesting initially as like kind of like depression or a certain degree of melancholy. The morbs? Yeah, the morbs, we, we call it. Oftentimes, that's as far as it would go. But more often than not, it would spiral downward from there, and it seemed to be epidemic. There's plenty of evidence in historical accounts and surveys that show a rise in cases of mental illness in the mid-19th into the early 20th century, particularly in this area, in the Great Plains of the United States. Okay. Journalist Eugene Smalley wrote in The Atlantic in 1893, quote, stories have surfaced of formerly stable people being turned depressed, anxious, irritable, and even violent by prairie madness. And the alarming level of madness is occurring in the new prairie states among farmers and their wives. This is curious. I'm, I'm interested. Stories began to trickle back to the East Coast of strange goings-on in the Great Plains. One story was of a young family uh, consisting of a husband and a wife. They had three children. Mm -hmm. The family left St. Louis to homestead in the Great Plains in the 1880s. And by all accounts, they were kind, God-fearing people. Shortly after settling a tract of land... Depression began to set in on both the husband and the wife. Soon, the husband would disappear for days at a time, and when he'd come back, he would be covered with wounds, oftentimes bleeding. Mm. It was said by those who witnessed this that he could be seen on his land swinging an axe as if felling trees that no longer were there. Oh, my. Early one morning, he murdered his entire family with that axe. Oof. He then set the cabin on fire and burned himself alive. Do you think it was an all work and no play kind of situation? I'm beginning, I was, as I was reading this, I was beginning to think exactly that. There are many accounts of other extreme cases of prairie madness that resulted in suicide. So what was the cause of prairie madness? There was much speculation that it had to do with restless spirits of indigenous peoples who were displaced from their land. My first thought would be the isolation of moving from your friends and family in a St. Louis to the plains where it's just you and your family. Well, you're on to something. Even though some people thought uh, they attributed it to a curse of some sort, mm -hmm. now we know Prairie Madness was most likely connected directly to the Homestead Act of 1862. This act would give a person 160 acres of prairie land if they could live on it and make something out of it within a five-year period. Farms of the Homestead Act had to be at least a half mile apart. However, many were much, much further than that. Right. So you've got families living on 160 acres of land. The next farm which is 160 acres, could be miles away. The settlers had to be completely self-sufficient, and they were extremely isolated, yeah. completely cut off in many ways. 
You would rarely see a neighbor, let alone any towns. Towns really were more like outposts that were set up along the railroad track. And each one was at least 20 miles apart. Often it would take more than a day to get to the town to market goods. And most people rarely saw the towns frequently. Usually it was just the man who would go to town. And interestingly, the highest incidence of prairie madness afflicted women. So clearly isolation did play a big part Mm. in in Prairie Madness, directly and also indirectly. Since it was so difficult to get to town, if a child fell sick, they frequently died. And this added to the trauma and the stress and the anxiety of living on the prairie. Now, did you decide to do this story because someone said that I've been acting weird since we moved? (laughs) <laughs> no, but that was strange. What was that on Twitter? Somebody said they, what What was it they said? That they'd been listening since the beginning and that there is a marked change in my demeanor since we moved to Florida. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, and so Kat comes to me and says, have I changed in the past year? And I said, well, you're a hell of a lot happier. So maybe, <laughs> maybe that has something to do with it. In addition to the isolation, weather contributed. The harsh weather and the environment of the Great Plains included long, cold winters, often filled with intense blizzards, and then summer would come along and it would be very short and hot. In the wintertime, the Great Plains would seem even more deserted than they did in the summertime. There were few trees to begin with. What few plants they could see would die and the animals would disappear. They would go into hibernation or just hold up for the winter. Mm. Settlers would be stuck in their cabins, often under several several feet of snow for days at a time. So certainly all of these things contributed to what is called prairie madness. Yeah. But now we're learning that there was something more. <gasps> was it ergot? <laughs> <laughs> it's always ergot. It's never lupus, and it's always ergot. In the Atlantic article from 1893 that uh, I talked about a few moments ago, Mm -hmm. they touched on that a little bit. Quote, during the winter, during the winter, the silence of death rests on the vast landscape. In Nellie McClung's story, The Neutral Fuse, a Manitoba settler writes a poem about the droning sounds of the plain. Quote, I hate the wind with its evil spite, and it hates me with a hate as deep, and hisses and jeers when I try to sleep. Oh, jeez. A paleoanthropologist with State University of New York named Alex D. Valise studies the evolution of human hearing, and it made him wonder if there was any truth to the idea that the wind on the prairie drove people mad. Kind of like in the stories that we've read about the Dietlov Pass, where yes. they say that the arrangement of the mountains led to a kind of swooping wind that created a sound right. that literally can drive you bananas. Yeah, it's at a frequency that it, uh, triggers a psychosis yeah. in some people. Same on the plains? And I thought the exact same thing. Well, his study was recently published in Historical Archaeology, and it suggests that the eerie soundscape of the Great Plains probably did contribute greatly to the rise of mental illness in settlers back in that day. A combination of the deathly silence and the howling wind 
certainly did affect them. And that's not surprising because research in modern subjects clearly demonstrates that what we hear can exacerbate not only sleep, stress, and mental health issues, but even cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes. Wow. Cardiovascular disease makes sense, but diabetes? Yeah. Oh, okay. So Valise was interested to find out if there was anything unique and special about the prairie's soundscape at least the prairie of that day. And obviously, he can't jump in a time machine and go back to gather that sort of data. So he collected contemporary recordings of the plains in Nebraska and Kansas. These recordings captured the sounds of the wind and the rain and just the natural soundscape. He then also recorded urban sounds from cities like Mexico City and Barcelona, Mm -hmm. which also featured weather sounds like rain and so on and so forth, but also the hum of traffic and pedestrians. He then fed the recordings into a computer program that creates visual representations of the spectrum of sound frequencies that the human ear can hear. And then he compared the two. Okay. This is confusing, but interesting. What he discovered was that all of the soundscapes recorded contained plenty of different sounds that humans would be able to hear naturally. But the sounds from the city were more diverse. There were so many sounds, and they spread so evenly across the range of human hearing that it produced something akin to white noise. Right. However, the sounds from the prairie had little to none of that background noise. In the sounds that did exist... And the sounds that did exist coincided with a particular sensitive part of the human hearing range that the brain recognizes more noticeably. He said, quote, the way I can describe it is it's very quiet and then suddenly you hear a noise and then you can't stop hearing the noise. You can't hear anything but the noise. It's like when it's completely quiet, but then you discover that there is a single cricket yes, in your home. That's exactly right. He he said it was it's something like being in a, uh, a extremely quiet library, and somebody introduces into that library a flock of geese. <laughs> no, yeah, it's, it's great. <laughs> every sound on the prairie, every cricket, every drop of rain, every chicken cluck becomes horribly distinct. Mm. You've heard stories about uh, the sensory deprivation chambers, rooms that they've designed to stop all echoes. It's the most perfectly acoustically designed room. Right, so that the sound of your blood flowing, you can hear. Yep. Spending too much time in an environment like this can start to drive you mad. Yeah. Uh, even the smallest sound, like you mentioned, blood coursing through your, your veins or, or heartbeat or even the rustle of your clothing mm. can be impossible to ignore. Adrian Casey Lee is an auditory brain scientist at the University of Washington. He says, quote, being adaptive is really for survival. Now, if you adapt to a low sound environment and all of a sudden there's a a loud sound coming on, of course, it's going to give you trouble. The idea that the Great Plains are so flat with limited vegetation and, and certainly few buildings in those days, the wind blowing through certain areas of the Great Plain could have produced unique frequencies of sound that could trigger psychosis, much like the Dyatlov Pass that you you mentioned earlier. And there's also been speculation more currently that the changing soundscapes caused by the most recent pandemic due to lockdowns and the transition to working at home had effects on the physical and mental well-being of people as well. You know, we call it becoming stir crazy or or cabin fever. Cabin fever. That movie was rough. 
In the end, we don't know for sure, but it certainly seems likely that there was something in the soundscape of the Great Plains in the late 18th and early 19th century that Smalley referred to in uh, his Atlantic article from 1893 as silence, and McClung referred to it as that hateful wind, affected the minds of the settlers that were isolated and alone on the Great Plains in those days. My source information, a fascinating article in Atlas Obscura, written by James Gaines, also Wikipedia and Psychology Today. Wow. The Wind Cries Mary. Oh, I just heard that song. It's been a while. <laughs> I think that we should have a Jimmy-thon. Always up for a Hendrix Fest. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— we answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And now, that thing in the middle. Throughout the history of the United States, there have been many major distilleries and whiskey producers. But did you know that in 1799, the nation's largest whiskey producer not only distilled 11,000 gallons that year, but was also George Washington, the father of our country. Derek sent us an email, curator at theboxofoddities.com. So I'm an automotive paint technician at a dealership, and it's 8.30 in the morning, and I'm in the paint booth all by myself, getting ready to spray a BMW, which sounds like a euphemism. It sure does. So I grabbed my spray gun, and then I heard Jethro say, tell me a story, bitch. And I laughed so hard, I bent over, and as I stood up, I looked through the window, and a co-worker was staring at me like, what the hell are you doing? I actually had to go back and restart the uh, story because I was laughing so hard and not paying attention to the podcast. Needless to say, you made my Friday. <laughs> so glad. <laughs> I love it that so many people reacted positively to you calling me a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> but it was done with so much love. <laughs> Pam commented on Instagram, just found y'all recently. Your relationship is so much like mine with my husband, and that makes me happy. Aww. Also, thank you, Kat, for restoring my faith in people with that nickname. 
<laughs> I don't know. Apparently, there's been a, a long run of crappy cats. Mm. <laughs> and Don sent us an email. Just got done listening to Box 456 with the lizard men from outer space. Mm. They have returned. Many believe they live in the subterranean t- tunnels under the Denver International Airport. Yes, we've, we've heard that. Mm. DIA has even gone so far as to acknowledge the existence of the tunnels and blame the lizard people sightings on employees playing jokes on other employees and members of the media. See, that makes me want to get a job at DIA because I would love to do that. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever wondered what really happened to Amelia Earhart or the lost colony of Roanoke? Do you ever find yourself scouring the internet for vicious Victorians and their murders by gaslight? Or perhaps you're just sick and tired of women being constantly misrepresented or plain lied about throughout history? If so, join me, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books on Who Did What Now? The history podcast that's not your history class part of the Area of Media Network. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Adios, au revoir, au revoir to zen, my friends. Bye-bye. I'll be seeing you. You, uh, really put on that shirt this morning and decided to wear it all day? Okay. This is... The Box of Oddities. Okay, your turn. Jacques Vancanson was born in France in 1709. He was the 10th child of a glove maker. Now, he started off as a very young person with an interest in mechanics and started fixing watches as a child, which is just the coolest thing. And I think that's one of the reasons why we need to encourage boredom in children. Because if your kids are busy all the time, they're never going to discover that they like fixing watches, right? I I would just like to come from a long line of glove makers. Right? They weren't really well off because, as you can imagine, it's hard to support a family of like 12 on glove making. Mm Mm-hmm. You have to admire their style, though. That's true, yes. Uh, When Jacques was a boy, he aspired to become a clockmaker. Now, unfortunately, his father died at the age of seven. Not his father. He was seven when his father died. It would be weird (laughs) if it was the other way around. And he was sent to a monastery for schooling. Jacques's family sent him to study under the Jesuits and later joined the Order of the Minims in Lyon, which are a Roman Catholic religious order of friars. 
And he was thinking like, okay, well, this this can be my purpose, you know. And since he came from a family without a lot of money, it made a lot of sense to go into a religious group where he would have then the freedom to do, you know, mechanics on his on his side time. I see. At the age of just 18, Jacques was given his own workshop in Lyon when a local nobleman became his patron and set him up to make machines. So cool, right? That was his art, and he found a patron for his art of machines, which is just so neat. Anyway, in that same year, 1727, there was a visit from some of the governing heads of the Minims. So this group of friars that he wanted to be a part of and that he had joined, um, the high ups came to visit him. And since he had this workshop, he thought in his little fanciful kind of way that he would create something for their visit. He came up with these automatic machines that would serve dinner to the friars. Okay. Yeah. Like an automat? Yes. Really? Exactly. Uh, He also figured it out so that they could clean up the table after everyone was finished eating, which is just the coolest thing. I mean, can I just once again point out, this is 1727. And he's come up with a monistic automat. I'm so, so happy about this guy. However... One of the officials declared that the interests and creations of Jacques were profane and ordered that his workshop be destroyed. Profane? Profane. The guy created an automat. Yeah. uh, Jacques was disappointed, as you can imagine, and withdrew from the order, leaving the monks behind. And why wouldn't you? Because here's that thing that you're incredibly skilled at that brings joy to you and others. And they're like, nope, (laughs) it's profane. What are you talking about even? Okay. Anyway. So, Jacques went to Paris, and, and his name just sounds like it belongs there anyway. Anyway, so in Paris, he studied medicine and anatomy, and he was encouraged and supported by the Parisian financer Samuel Bernard. He was one of the wealthiest men of his time. Also during this time, Jacques met Claude-Nicolas Lecat who was a French surgeon who had a knack for sharing his interests in science. Now, Lacat shared his interest in biology and anatomy, and with that, Jacques had like this renewed and funded interest in machinery, and ideas really started to bubble. A few years later, Jacques built the flute player. It was a life-sized figure of a shepherd that played the flute. It was like a robot? It's like a robot. a robot flautist? Yes. I'm trying to come up with some sort of Yanni joke, but it, nothing's okay. coming to me. Anyway, the... A mechanical Yanni? Yup. It was built to look like marble, and then it had mechanisms for every tiny muscle that would be involved in the task of playing the flute, including tongue muscles oh to God. move the air from top to bottom. Wow. There was an intricate set of pipes and bellows, and the automaton could, quote-unquote, breathe to control airflow through the flute. He then had a little bit of struggle with the fingers uh, hitting the, the holes on the flute, which I know have names, but I did not 
think to look it up until just now. Mm. And so he covered the fingers with a soft glove-like skin. And I have to think that maybe his dad being a glove maker kind of sure. played into yeah. that. Yeah. Either way, the the automaton could play 12 different melodies. See, if, if I had come up with uh, an automatron that had uh, working tongue muscles mm. and glove-like skin, it wouldn't be for playing... Well, maybe it would be. Yeah. Never mind. Uh-huh. I just know I would never go outside. That's sure. no need to at that point. In early 1738, he presented his creation to the Academy of Sciences, and they were much more excited than those friars were. <laughs> The Academy judged the machine extremely ingenious and praised both the intelligence of the creator and his extensive knowledge of mechanical parts. Now, there were some musicians who poo-pooed it. and Well, of course. I think the idea was like, well, it can't play like we can play. and Well, no, it's a machine and it's the 1700s. What's wrong with you? Anyway, they, the, they were worried they were going to be displaced by right. flute playing robots. It's the equivalent of the self checkout concern. Mm-hmm. And uh, the real issue that they had was that the, the lips couldn't form around the flute in the right way. And so it kind of sounded shrill. Yeah, that 18th century robot music is a little shrill. <laughs> How embarrassing. <laughs> what? So. It was pretty successful, and Jacques decided to build a second automaton. This one was a tambourine player. Oh, wow. He's building his own band. He is. Yeah. Uh, But this guy had a repartee of 20 tunes. So he's really, he's moving it on up. But at the time, mechanical creatures were gaining popularity in Europe. Most could be classified as toys, the things that Jacques Vaucanson, later to be known as Jacques de Vaucanson, were making were nowhere near toys. They weren't anything like toys. They were mechanical masterpieces, and people recognized them as such. Now, this is the part of the story that we get to the, the story. Oh, the, okay. The thing that I wanted to talk about. Right. Do you want to take a break for a minute, prepare your pork taint? My pork taint is always prepared. Okay. This is when Jacques created the defecating duck. (laughs) I love this guy. I mean, he had me at robot flautist, but a defecating duck? This is Jean's masterpiece. It's a gold-plated, life-sized, shitting duck. (laughs) The digesting duck is uh, Jacques' most popular invention. It was a mechanical duck inspired by Descartes' idea that animals function a lot like a machine. He was an incredibly detailed duck. He sat on an enormous base housing the mechanics. He was life-sized and constructed of hundreds of parts covered in perforated gold-plated copper to allow a view of the workings inside. This duck had over 400 moving parts in each wing. Wow. It could flap its wings. It could drink water. It could eat pellets offered to it. And then after, quote, digestion, poop them out the other end. Now, though Jacques' creation supposedly demonstrated digestion accurately, the duck actually contained a hidden compartment of 
quote unquote digested food. So what the duck was defecating was not the same as what it ate. Yeah, that's what I I suspected as much. It was a little trickery for Mm -hmm. sure, but it still, it got the point across. You saw how it was happening and the ins and the outs and all that. Right. Yeah. Um, Plus, the breadcrumbs and green dye that were coming out the back end (laughs) looked a lot like duck poop. (laughs) So well done. So, okay, even though D.D. the digesting duck may seem like another frivolous piece of entertainment for the bored wealthy of the time, the digesting duck was credited for inventing the world's first flexible rubber tubing, and that acted as the duck's intestines. Now, to think of it as the uh, entertainment for the elites and the masses uh, back in those days, I wonder if it had the same sort of social impact that VCRs did. When, when they were first introduced. Oh, yeah. People would go over to somebody's house. He's got he's got one of them pooping ducks. <laughs> Let's go over to his place and watch it. Well, they would all have to come to the same area to watch the pooping duck because um, there was just the one. Just one? Yeah. Okay. I know, it's a shame. Speaking of which, we just bought a VCR. It's a very exciting time <laughs> in the Walstoth household. The Mechanical Duck was a smashing success, and Jacques would end up touring Europe with his creations. Voltaire memorably observed in 1741 that without the voice of Lamour and Vaucanson's duck, you would have nothing to remind you of the glory of France. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, I just want to take a second and Mm. absorb that Mm -hmm. moment. Mm He apparently Jacques tired very quickly of his creations and he sold them to a few entrepreneurs from Lyon in 1743. And they toured with them for nearly a decade, showing them throughout Europe. Wow. And apparently made quite a pretty penny doing so. Unfortunately, there were several instances that led to the destruction of all three of these amazing creations. The duck burned in a museum fire in Poland in 1889, and both the musical automatons were destroyed at the beginning of the 19th century. Now, after this whole flautist tambourine duck moment, Jacques decided to move on, and King Louis XV has just appointed him as inspector of silk manufacture. (laughs) Um, He was hoping to rival the English and Scottish silk that was very popular at the time. And so he was like, well, let's get this incredible machinist guy on uh, the case, right? And, And he did. Jacques had several improvements that were adopted by the silk industry, and And most importantly, uh, one of the laths that he created, I don't know anything about silk manufacture, but anyway, it ended up being very important to the industry. Um, So he was just so, so skilled in so many different ways. And yeah, let's not forget about the flexible rubber tubing. Right. I think about every time that I have cleaned a fish tank and how much more difficult that would have been without flexible rubber tubing. Amen, sister. Thank you. I got my information from Atlas Obscura, HistoryMesh.com, ResearchGate, APS News, and of course, Wikipedia. I just want to say, I want to make it completely clear, Mm -hmm. anytime you have a story about a defecating robot, I'm in. Yeah. (laughs) I thought maybe. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What's funnier than robots and poop? Mm, Not a lot. We've been getting a lot of uh, email at our curator, 
at the Box of Oddities email address, but for our other podcast, oh, the, the Shallow, Shallow End. End. Yeah, I just wanted to say there's a, it's a, that's fine. You know, we can we'll we'll move that over to the lifeguard from mm. the curator, but uh, we do have a specific email address uh, for the Shallow End, and that is lifeguard at shallowendpodcast.com. And if you have not had a chance to check out that podcast yet. We encourage you to do so, and the link is in the show notes. We just had a wonderful opportunity to spend a little bit of time with the curator slash the co-host of The Shallow End and his lovely wife, Nancy. The uh, the lifeguard, if you will. And um, while we were staying together in a hotel in Mexico, she did an audition for NCIS. Yeah. She's so cool. She's so cool. <laughs> And, and also recorded the uh, voiceover for a national Toyota commercial. No big deal. Yeah. She's so fancy. Meanwhile, I took half a bottle of Imodium <laughs> <laughs> and discovered that there are two words for peanut in Spanish. So, I mean, we all have our skills. We'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. The box of oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com On Facebook at Facebook.com slash BoxOfOdditiesPodcast On Twitter at BoxOfOddities And Instagram at BoxOfOdditiesPodcast Copyright 2022 All rights reserved Hi, I'm Neil And I'm Ken And we are from the Triviality Podcast a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that because you're already listening to a podcast. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts.